Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Kaylee Astle. Kaylee is the founder and CEO of Blanca. Blanca helps anyone start a makeup or skincare line in under five minutes. In this episode, we discuss a variety of things, including Kaylee's background at large companies like Deloitte and SAP, and startups like Mob Squad and Spocket, the Genesis idea behind Blanca solving one of her own problems at a previous company, nuances to building for the Shopify app store, switching strategies from being bootstrapped to raising capital, and much more. If you're interested in using Blanca, use the code HARDPART10, that's HARDPART and the number 10, for 10% off using Blanca. Please enjoy my conversation with Kaylee Astell. Kaylee, I'd like to start with your background. You worked at some very, very interesting companies uh, from super large to more startup, SAP, Deloitte, founding team at Mob Squad, a Calgary favorite of mine, and, and Spocket as well. Um, I guess we could talk about each individually, or maybe there's just this kind of career arc that you've kind of gone through, and maybe there's some learnings along that journey. And almost kind of seems like you went from like super large companies, it's like obviously now you're running your own startup, but you seem to have gone down the chain to ultimately being a founder yourself. So my MO ever since I was really in university has always been about optionality. I always wanted to keep as many doors open for myself as possible. That was actually the reason why I went into accounting because I was like, well, if I go into accounting, then I can do this CPA or I can do the CFA or I could just get a marketing job. So I was always just trying to keep as many doors open as possible um, so I didn't have to make a decision too quickly. Um, I interned in marketing roles, audit roles, sales and ops roles, and eventually landed in consulting with Deloitte, which again was just that opportunity for me to be super curious. And it's where I fell in love with technology. And I learned so much in such a short period of time. I also learned that, you know, the corporate world probably isn't the best fit for me. I didn't love how linear my career trajectory looked. And I also burned out because it so much was like, a weird meritocracy in the sense that the better you did, the more work they'd pile on and like sometimes the worst clients you ended up getting on. And so 
I wanted to get out of that and have a bit more control over what I was building, what I was working on. And the startup world really was so attractive to me. Um, I tried a few different things. And eventually, after a number of years in the startup world, I was asked to join the founding team of Mob Squad. And that was such an incredible experience for me. And the ca- company has absolutely crushed it. We, you know, we were featured on the cover of the Washington Post really early on. We were a tech talent company and, and quite innovative in the way that we were relocating people to Canada. There's even a Harvard business case written about it. And so it was an amazing experience, but ultimately it was a tech talent company. It wasn't a tech company. And so I wanted to get deeper into the SaaS world and I joined Spocket during a, a few years out of Mob Squad and, and during my time there, watched the company 100x revenue in less than two years. And so that's where I fell in love with e-commerce and ultimately was like, I want to start my own brand. So yeah, a lot about optionality and just being very curious, I think is kind of what's defined my career. So you're in that e-commerce space and you ultimately you want to start something and you do and you launch it. You, we talked about in the pre-chat about, you know, you launched something during COVID. Um, what was that experience like? Kind of, you know, again, like you were part of a founding team at Mob Squad. So you kind of knew that kind of that process and that grind, so to speak. But what was it like kind of starting your own e-commerce brand uh, during that time? It was a disaster. (laughs) Um, I thought it was going to be so easy because I'd started companies. I'd worked in e-commerce. It looked, you know, I've seen people launch really successful D2C brands. And so I was like, hey, I could do this. And every corner I turned around was like another challenge when it came to finding suppliers. There's over 13,000 global manufacturers of skincare and cosmetics. So I had no idea where to start. And then I had to order samples and make sure that they were FDA and Health Canada compliant. And then I had to invest in inventory to meet minimums. And then I had to store all that inventory and get it branded and then deal fulfillment. It's like, even when I started getting the business running, it was like annoying when I got orders because I'd have to go home and pack them. And so needless to say, it was a really painful process. And it's, you know, I wasn't the only one experiencing that process and that challenge. And so that ended up being kind of the catalyst to starting. That is extremely interesting. I've only had like a few people on the podcast that have literally had a business and then the next business they start is to solve a problem they had with that first business. Um, So I'm just kind of curious of like, you had the problem yourself. When did that kind of spark go off of like, hey, lots of other people are having this problem. And I can actually like solve my own problem by building like a new business. Was there kind of, what was kind of that, hey, that idea moment there? I was able to come to that conclusion a lot faster because I'd had so much experience in e-commerce when I was at Spocket. And I had exposure to Shopify and Alibaba and all these different things, frankly. So I think that helps accelerate my problem solving hat, so to speak. Um, We launched the beta version of Blanca in 2021. And so is, you know, thinking about it a lot and then building for the first three months of 2021. And then we published it in the Shopify app store in March of 2021. Had no idea what we were doing, really, myself and my two co-founders. And we had no idea if it would stick, but we started getting downloads and we hit like our initial kind of subscription um, onboarding revenues like really quickly. And so we were like, okay, there's something here, but it was so janky when we built it and it needed a lot of refinement over time. What was that app store experience like? Again, I've had, you know, just a hand, handful, three or four other people 
on the podcast that have kind of built for that app store experience. And it is a unique space to kind of launch a platform into. Was there kind of any nuances there? Again, I know you were at Spocket and you had done stuff in e-commerce, but do you think there's kind of like a learning curve or like a different kind of go-to-market strategy versus, uh, you know, maybe not being on the app store? The Shopify app store is so powerful. I'm, I'm the Shopify's biggest fan, right? I love the company. I love how they've built the company. And I think their app store is so powerful because A, it helped, you know, it's an open API for developers to build and ultimately bring Shopify more customers. But these developers are then solving problems for customers or brands or merchants, as Shopify calls them, that Shopify, you know, didn't have the time or capacity to solve for. Um, I definitely think there are nuances to how to build successfully in the ecosystem. There's no question about it. And you can't just go and build an app and expect like, here we go, we're done, it's good to go. Um, you really have to put the time into, you know, promoting it and making sure you're categorized properly and making sure you're getting good reviews because that drives your ranking. Like there is a lot of strategy behind it, but it's such a powerful traffic driver once you figure out how to make it work. And now we're ranking in about the top six, seven percent of all Shopify apps and there's over 7,000. So that's something I'm really proud of. Curious too, on that kind of thread of Shopify, of it being really just like a platform business that's looking to amplify anyone that wants to start a brand. I would say Blanca is in that category too. I don't know if you would disagree with that, but I'm just kind of curious of like what it's like building kind of like a platform business that helps others build a business on top of it, which is a unique place to be in versus what a lot of people start from a business perspective. We're so similar to Shopify in the way that they were kind of like the OGs in democratizing e-commerce. And in a lot of ways, we're kind of following in their footsteps so much so that like Shopify started out as, you know, helping small mom and pop stores get online. And now they're doing like the Shopify Plus empowering, you know, the Sephora's of the world. Um, similarly for us is like we've started small and we're empowering these really small brands, but we're now starting to work with larger, larger brands, helping them extend their beauty lines. Like a really big apparel company, for example, wants to test out uh, a, a, a gift with purchase, for example. And so we're really kind of following in those footsteps. And for me, like when I step away and think about what I'm doing every single day and what I'm building, I'm so proud of what we're building because we're essentially enabling all of these emerging brands to start their own businesses when they maybe didn't have the resources or the technology available to them to do so before. So it's really cool. I think it gives a different passion behind what we're building because it's an enablement play in so many ways. I'm curious too with like that enablement play of like going like super deep, like vertically integrated, like again, like you mentioned, like cosmetics. How did you, how did you know that, you know, should you focus on that and be a f full vertical integration so someone can just come to Blanca and just launch a brand versus maybe even going more horizontal and like dealing with a few verticals, but maybe a little bit less of that supply chain? I guess, how did you kind of determine your initial focus? And again, you're probably going to have a wider uh, uh, angle as you go on, but I guess just how did you determine the initial focus for the business? I can answer that in kind of two ways. So, I mean, at a very broad level, just to make sure everybody listening understands is essentially Blanca automates the process of launching a branded beauty line. We take care of product procurement. We take care of personalization of the products and fulfillment. So a brand can come onto our platform 
choose from a huge catalog of products, add their logo, start selling the product without ever touching the inventory. When they get orders, we take care of personalizing everything and shipping it to their end customers. And so, you know, to answer your question about how we chose the space, when I think about beauty specifically, I mean, I already had experience trying to build a brand in beauty and I am super bullish on the industry. It's supposed to be valued at something like $570 billion by 2027. So it's like, I'm really excited about the industry because not only is it growing, but it's evolving really quickly. In the old days of beauty, it was so much dominated by these like nine large CPG brands like L'Oreal and and Estee. And they were sold through department stores and those big companies owned general trend setting, for example. And today that landscape has shifted so dramatically where emerging brands are being born overnight. And that started with the Kylie's of the world, but now you know, there's more accessibility that other brands are starting to kind of come up and, and attempt to do the same thing. And so I think I saw this opportunity in the beauty industry because I had built in it. And I do believe it's such an archaic industry still. But then the other piece around tech is that we are so much more vertically integrated today than I ever would have expected us to be. I thought we were going to be a full tech play and we are a verti- we're vertically integrated SaaS. I think that's such a powerful place for us to be because we have so many, so much control over different levers of the business. And so that piece of it was accidental. <laughs> How do you think about it from a customer perspective? Like you met, mentioned uh, like a D2C brand in, in kind of clothing, launching a beauty aspect to it, or, you know, it might be that kind of ambitious entrepreneur or founder that wants to launch their own thing. How do you think about it from like a customer perspective? Is their experience relatively the same? just maybe different kind of volumes that they're accessing. Um, I'm just interested how you think about from a customer experience, if maybe you have a few different types of customers. Our customer mix has really been defined by two things. The first is that we're product led. We don't have a sales team. We have a really lean support team. And so we're discovered and then they fully onboard on their own. And so that's one piece that kind of ends up filtering out certain types of customers or attracting others, I'd say. The other piece is that We've done zero marketing in the two and a half years that we've been in existence. That was more a function of being bootstrapped than of choice, um, which we can talk about in a little bit. But because we grew organically and we were product led, this certain type of customer mix showed up on the platform. And we kind of see it as like four main archetypes, I guess. The first is net new brands who are looking to start something and use our rails to like our our guardrails to like source products and have low minimums or no minimums. In fact, Um, the second is existing brands. So I shared with you apparel companies or an online boutique that wants to test out a new category in a really risk free way in beauty. The third is beauty professionals, makeup artists, estheticians um, looking to launch a new revenue stream. And finally, creators and influencers. We have a handful of creators with well over a million followers who have just found us organically and are using us to propel our, you know, power their businesses. What do you think about the kind of creator business industry? Like, you know, I think prime example, like you said, Kylie, uh, all her products there, or like Skims with, with, with Kim Kardashian and just valued at a ridiculous amount of money. I guess like, what are your thoughts on that space? Do you see it going a certain direction? Do you see more and more people getting to it where until a point where it's saturated? I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that space and where you see it going. I think what we're going to end up seeing is like 
like um, I think that creator and and celebrity led brands are here to stay. I think they're so powerful because of the type of access they have to their followings and their audience. And there's so much power in like what the influencer can do and what they can drive. I think the bigger shift that will we will see is around like how they sell you know traditionally d2c has in a lot of ways been like a business model and i don't think it can no longer be a business model it'll have to be a channel and so i think we'll see a lot more of these brands moving more into omni-channel approaches with more like multi-touch opportunities with their customers whether that's a pop-up or a full brick and mortar um that's kind of how I see it, but I'm I'm very bullish on like celebrity and and influencer led brands. I think there's a lot of power there, just because the way people buy is very different than it was in department stores department stores of, of decades ago. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that. Like I've had some other attractive consumer founders on on, and they've all mentioned like it's a channel, it's not a business. So it's really interesting that you kind of reiterated that. I guess from like a user experience. Um, someone using Blanca, would they be able to, you know, that, obviously they could sell directly through e-commerce, but also would they be able to kind of distribute to like uh, retail and like, again, like kind of you talked about that omni-channel approach. So you're kind of powering that whole life cycle, not just direct to consumer. Exactly. And that's so important is like, we're like, we're definitely have the most power through our integrations with Shopify, Wix, WooCommerce, um, and can handle all the fulfillment, but I'd have to confirm like what the number is it's like nearly half of our orders are big inventory orders that are going to somebody's brick and mortar or we ship it into actually amazon fba and it gets sold through there for us you know our goal is to empower these brands and so we're really flexible on how we do that and we've we're seeing like so many unique approaches to for go to market but definitely um i think like we've set it up so that we can also support that omni-channel more in-person approach. And there's still so much upside to using the platform because of the deeper discounts you get through us and the customization and below minimums and the the curated product selection that we have. Also with that kind of that platform model, um, you mentioned all like these strengths here with like that supply chain aspect, sourcing product, everything. What are your thoughts on like the the marketing side, like the branding side? Um, like where do you kind of stop currently and maybe looking to expand in the future? Or is that just, hey, that's a completely different product and you know, we're not even going to go there. I guess like where do you find that balance? I've really tried to take the mindset of of being as focused as possible, which is hilarious because it's like I talked about my optionality and trying everything, but I I don't want to have that like bright shiny object syndrome issue that founders tend to have and so we're really focused on like the tech and you know the supply chain element of the business that being said we get asked so much like where can we support with marketing or like where do we end and we've tried to draw a bit of a line in the sand on marketing but definitely we're starting to explore how we might be able to productize that a little bit more maybe it's you know we're in a partnership with an agency that we can send our brands to when they need certain help. Um, I have some really cool partnerships in the works right now on that with some big names that I'm really excited about. And so we're definitely exploring it. It's just about trying to also stay as focused as possible because we have been so lean and don't have a ton of resources. But at the end of the day, 
the our success is directly correlated to our merchant success. So if we can support that in another way, we're definitely open to it. So you mentioned bootstrapping earlier, you know, around 2021. And uh, I know you announced the, the raise relatively uh, like just a few months ago. Um, why the, the switch there? And I guess like why bootstrap from day one, especially when 2021 was still kind of like the peak market, everyone was raising tons and tons of money. I guess, what was the reasoning to be bootstrapped for such a long time? And then the maybe, you know, I, would, I don't want to call it a shift in strategy, but why why open it up to, to raise money? The reason a bootstrap for me was like there was some emotion tied to it. I needed to get the confirmation and comfort around the traction and the business we were building before I could go out and bring other people's money into the business. Like I really needed that conviction. And now my conviction level is like so high that, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you invest in this? Um, but also like bootstrapping really is amazing. And I would tell any founders listening to bootstrap for as long as you can, because, you know, it makes you scrappy. It forces you to come up with really creative approaches to things. And you just like start to understand your business in such detail before you can pull on so many other levers that capital gives you access to. Um, I think the reason why we were able to bootstrap for as long as we did is first our founder team. I have two co-founders and between the three of us, we have all the skills we needed in-house to get the beta version of Blanka shipped. And I just want to, you know, to call out my co-founders. It's like we have such a shared passion for what we are building and I'm so lucky for, you know, who they are and the complementary skill sets that we were able to bring to the table. Um, but we had to continue working in consulting and freelance jobs while building Plank Guy. It was like very challenging and we only fully came into the company in May of 2022 and frankly, like barely paid us enough to get by, especially in Vancouver. That was really hard. Um, so being scrappy. The other thing is that, um, being a Canadian incorporated company, there are so many incredible non-dilutive programs that support early stage startups. And I signed up and got my hands on every single one of them. So that's kind of how we managed to stay afloat for the first two years. And then really, it would have been late last year, you know, fall of, of 22, we started to see the real opportunities where we could grow the business faster if we had that capital because we saw where the traction was coming from. We knew we were only getting traffic from like three main sources and it was all organics. So we knew we could start to put a more bit more fuel on the fire. And that's when we decided to raise a round. And so, yeah, we closed our round in May of this year and have the best cap table ever i'm so we're so lucky we don't need to name names but just i want you to get your your thought process on how you did the raise like maybe okay like hey i'm deciding to raise like what was kind of your your process or what did you envision there how did it ultimately go to stay on course or not and then why select certain individuals and again we don't need to name names if you don't want to but uh j just why do you select certain types of people to invest I'll try and keep this brief because I swear this could be a whole podcast episode in and itself. Um, after raising, I got so many founders reaching out to me asking how I did it. And so I wrote like a seven page document and I've shared it very widely. And in fact, it just got picked up by Forbes and reshared there. So I have so many thoughts on this and I and it was such a hard process. But for me, when it came to raising, we did want to raise U.S. capital. We just saw the opportunity that unlocked 80% of our customers are in the U.S. 
And so it just made sense for us. I didn't have those networks though. And so the very first thing that really helped align us in the right direction was joining Forum Ventures Accelerator. They're a B2B uh, SaaS focused accelerator and they did so much groundwork in helping me get ready for fundraising. We spent the better part of the fall getting our deck design, getting my narrative dialed, getting all of my like preemptive answers um, or questions answered. And then I joined their founder investor week in Seb of this year. So we kicked off February 27th and things felt good uh, at first, you know, got a lot of meetings booked through their network and drummed up a lot of my own. And then about 10 days into the process, Silicon Valley bank collapsed and that totally impacted like everything in my process. And I was trying to run a really tight process and I just leaned on so many founders to understand like how they ran, um, you know, an effective process. And, and it was challenging to be honest with you, but we ended up, you know, having term sheets roll in about four weeks in and we are working with Dundee VC, um, and they are so amazing. Like it, it's very public that they're our lead investor and they're really focused on the future of commerce and they invest, you know, a little bit into DTC brands and then a lot of e-commerce enablement. So it's such a natural fit. Um, yeah, I, I just, I'm so fortunate for them. And then there was a lot of conviction from a few other investors early days from, you know, I sent out investor newsletters very frequently, even before I started raising. And so a lot of those folks who had been following our journey um, committed. So, you know, it, it was it was a challenging process and there's so much more I can go into on this, but we we ran a tight one. It was 10 weeks. We went out to raise 1.5 US and we oversubscribed up to two. So we have what we need to get to that next stage. So yeah, it, it feels really good. It's like definitely one of my biggest life accomplishments. Uh, you mentioned your co-founders too, and I know you're kind of doing it on this, like as a side thing initially to start. How did you go about, you know, finding your co-founders, you know, finding a good fit, especially with, with the three of you, that, that's an interesting dynamic. But how did you go about finding those individuals who had been part of founding teams and early startups before? So maybe you, you knew some signs to look for, but how did you initially land on like that group? Yeah, so I haven't shared, like I've gotten to dig deep into my co-founder relationships um, on a podcast before. And it's something that I'm so passionate and proud of. And I spoke on a, a I spoke about it on a panel last night, actually, and realized like what a great story our co-founding team really is. So I'll give you um, kind of like the background on first my CTO, Doug. He and I are longtime friends, been friends for over 10 years. And after working at Deloitte, I burned out and I decided to move to Panama to be a dive instructor. And Doug decided he wanted to come travel with me. And, you know, we spent three months in Panama and he worked remotely as a developer and I just dove and was trying to figure out what my next role would be. And he was coaching me for my startup interviews. And we always joked that one day we would start a company together. And we subsequently worked together in different kind of freelance roles when I needed a developer in, in other jobs. And so um, when the concept of Blanca came up, I remember calling him and I was walking through Yelltown pitching him this concept and he was like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> And it was great because we had that background relationship and we, it's so much had been already foundationally built. And then my other co-founder, our CMO, Adam, is my husband now. So he comes with like an incredible marketing and brand background. 
And similarly, we always said we wanted to build something together because we have such complementary skill sets. I'm an ops person, I'm finance, I'm strategy. He's the creative and he's the design and then Doug's the builder. And so it just kind of fell into place. And I'm so lucky it did. The relationship is so strong. We have tough conversations, but we bounce right back from them. And and because there's so much history there, we know each other so intimately in so many ways and 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 know how to work together really well. And so, yeah, I'm I'm really fortunate for the co-founders that I have. Um, it's funny. I remember being at an event a couple of years ago and someone what someone asked a group like, I'm looking for a co-founder. How how do I find one? And somebody in the group replied being like, oh, like, try a meetup. That's literally the worst advice I've ever heard. And I can't emphasize enough how big of a decision choosing your co-founders is. And because it can make or break a company. These are the people making huge decisions. And so you need to trust them. And you also need to be able to have the tough conversations with them, but bounce back from it like nothing happened. And it's someone once shared with me, like your co-founder is like a sibling. You have your ups and downs, but at the end of the day, you're like always there from them. And you're always like showing a united front together amongst everyone else. And so, yeah, it, I, I'm so lucky. I think that's a great way to look at it from like a sibling perspective. I haven't heard that. That's super cool. Um, you mentioned like operations background and, and, and you've had that for quite a while. Just kind of curious what you think makes a great operations person whether that's like a leader or maybe even just someone in that role from an operational perspective i didn't even realize i was good at operations until you know after leaving deloitte but in a lot of the roles i was at in deloitte i was typically in like a big project management office for large-scale tech implementation so i was running like you know project work streams and like deliverables and critical paths and documentation, like all those things that kind of sound boring. But for me, like I loved getting everything organized and getting really on track. And so I think a lot of those mindsets have kind of been applied to Blanca. It's like, let's let's document and think about process and automate as much as we can because we're so lean. The other thing that I think about a lot with operations and I said this to Beck early on. She's like our first employee and she's continued to just like grow in the business. And she told me this that I and she repeated this to me a couple of days ago. She's like, Kelly, you told me that operations in a startup is where you are like building teams and building the processes. And then once it's scaled enough, you hand it over to somebody else to take over. And that's so true of like our customer success function, of like our fulfillment function, of what's going to become a sales function. And so I think that's really true is like operations are where things are kind of like born, but they don't live there forever necessarily either. I've kind of heard you kind of mention a few times for the conversation too, just like, you know, you mentioned like a pitch thing last night or other founders reaching out to you with like questions and kind of the ecosystem in Vancouver. And I guess like we don't have to talk about Vancouver specifically as a tech ecosystem because your network might be broader than that. But what do you th really think about with, you know, you talk, you said talking to other founders about how they've done raise a, a raise process. How do you think about building that network of founders, whether it's kind of like a round table and like you just ping them with questions or is it like a broader thing from like a network perspective? Like, how do you think about that with meeting other founders? Single-handedly, the most important thing you're going to do for your business, I believe. I would not have been introduced to Forum VC if it wasn't for Kathleen Chen in Toronto at Calico. Like I wouldn't have met 
a couple of my investors if it wasn't for, you know, a few of the start founders actually in Calgary who made an introduction. Like there are so many people in the founder community that have done so much for me and I really try and do the same for them. And I'm constantly introducing people to my investors as well. And so it's so important to build those relationships because we all are going to help each other and we all should be helping each other. And so, yeah, I, I'm very fortunate to have built a really, really strong community of founders across Canada. Like I have my founder besties in every city and it's been really monumental to my success. It's also like a bit therapeutic when things are tough. I have a great friend group in Vancouver, but frankly, they're all like in real estate or in like retail. And so they don't necessarily understand the, the ups and downs of, of the founder journey. And so having that, those friendships with other founders who do understand is so powerful. And so, yeah, I'm, I, I can't emphasize how important that is and, and, and leveraging the founder network as much as you can. Just to maybe circle back to the raise again, like, so when you got the capital injected into the business, how did you make sure to like, you know, it's not so much that you had to like remain scrappy, but just how did you kind of deploy that capital or, hey, where should this capital go effectively after being bootstrapped? Just kind of curious. I'm sure you talked to lots of others about it, but was there kind of like some process you had of, okay, we're going to get this money and like, we're going to deploy it here. We're going to put some away here or. So there's been a few phases to like post fundraise that I've gone through. Phase one was if you've ever seen Tom Hanks in Castaway when he leaves the deserted island and goes to the restaurant and doesn't want to eat anything, it, that was my experience. I was like, we have this many, but we like, it's just, I haven't done anything for a month because I don't know, it, it just felt so weird. So that was phase one. Um, and then phase two was like, okay, it's time to activate this full plan. And like a successful fundraise, comes with like massive due diligence and data room reviews. And in that you have all your financial projections, you have your hiring plans, you have your go-to-market. So I'm really just activating all of those things that we've committed to. But what's really cool is that because we have capital, we're actually learning faster and identifying new opportunities a lot faster too. So um, when it comes to like the capital that we raised, it's been really broken down into a few kind of avenues that we're focused on definitely hiring we needed a few more senior people on the team that we were missing and I'm so proud of the team that we've built like they're awesome now so we are fully ramped up as of the end of this month um and then the next is like go to market and really testing a lot of things our theme for next year is um growth and experimentation and so we're really going to activate that and so yeah it's um it's definitely something that like just my operational accounting mindset going into fundraising, I knew how I was going to deploy the capital, uh, but it took me like a month to like be like, okay, it's actually in the bank. We can. And I know we kind of chatted a bit, uh, a bit about it already, but just in the sense of like, I'd love to talk about like the user kind of experience or journey with Blanca. So compared to what you would do without it. So like if I was to start like a brand tomorrow, you know, I'm assuming, you know, I'd have to go find someone to go make the product then i'd have to find someone to distribute it and i had to do tests and samples and there's probably order minimums etc cetera, etc cetera. i guess you know it's probably a very detailed process but like high level what are like what is the major unlock using blanca versus going out solo so i think the first major unlock is the product selection you 
onboarding to the platform and instantly have access to over 350 super high quality SKUs, largely from North America, um, mainly in Canada and the United States. And we're starting to explore some Korean suppliers as well, just because there's amazing innovative products in the beauty space coming out of Korea. Um, so that's the first unlock is the the curated product selection. Um, everything is like Health Canada and FDA compliant. The second, I would say, is our logo our logo generator is what we call it internally. I should probably get a better external term for that. But anyways, basically where a brand uploads their logo and they can instantly see what their logo looks like on products in a matter of seconds. There's such an emotional connection where you can see your brand on something. And so I think that's a big one. And then the third is from there, you just publish it to Shopify. And so Shopify um, integrates directly or we integrate directly into Shopify. And when orders come through, we're taking care of the fulfillment. And so you can sell one unit of a branded product and there's no order fees. There's no minimums. You really just are paying for the product, um, the cost of the product and and the monthly subscription that we charge. And so we're trying to make it really easy. We do say that you can get started for, it's about under $200. And you can add logos to the products and publish it to your Shopify store in a matter of minutes. So it's really, really quick to get up and run. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and uh, it might be hard to pick a favorite book, but maybe just something you're currently reading or recently read. So I read between like 15 to 20 books a year and it's definitely a mix of business and fiction. Um I will not share the fictional books I read because they're ridiculous. They're like my nighttime reads. But in terms of a business book that reads like a great story, I really loved Shoe Dog. Uh, It's Phil Knight's memoir. He's definitely a bit self-promotional in the book, but I do love the story of everything he had to overcome to get Nike to where it is today, from like cash flow struggles to working with various factories. I, I think it's great. That is a great one. What are you most excited about? We're getting close to 2024, but what are most what are you most excited about in the new year personally and professionally? Personally, it's so hard to pull personal out of professional when you're a startup founder. Um, okay, personally, full transparency, I've lived a very nomadic life over the last two years. That's a function of building a company and investing everything I had back into the company. So I'm really excited to just like create a bit more of a home base for myself in 2024. Um, And then from a professional standpoint, 2024 is our year. Um, I shared our themes of growth and experimentation, and I just cannot wait to see what we're going to do because I I feel like next year is going to really be a big one. I'm excited to watch. Uh, How do you deal with hard times? You mentioned uh, when you burnt out, you moved to South America and became a dive instructor. Is that the way you deal with hard times? If not, what are, what are some ways you deal with that? No, definitely not. That was my 20-year-old version of dealing with challenging times. My ad- more adult grown-up version is um, I, I, I step back. I do a lot. I spend a lot of time like in the outdoors. I really care about fitness and working out. It just makes me feel so good mentally. And then I'm you know, I'm such an extrovert that I get a lot of my energy from my close family and friends. And I think that they're, they've always been so supportive through like the ups and downs that come with building a company. And that was the last question for me. I like to open up the mic to you, like any kind of message you want to leave with the listeners before we wrap it up. Definitely. I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. Such great pointed questions. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I guess like a quick plug on Blanca is A, we're hiring. We're hiring 
a number of roles for the new year in marketing and sales and in tech. So if it's something that's interesting, um, check out our website or our LinkedIn. And then the other pieces I'll share with you, Evan, but we'll I'll share like a promo code to check out Blanca and order some products and start a business of your own. Awesome. Kaylee, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on and we'll make sure to link everything super easily in the description so people can get there. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you. This is awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.